Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to move our discussion into the realm of regional anesthesia. Our next several talks are going to be relating to the different aspects of regional anesthesia. We're going to do one on the upper extremity, one on the lower extremity, and then one on spinal and epidural. So today we're going to start off with the upper extremity. And how we want to divide this up is there's different plexuses throughout the body. And basically what a plexus is, it's a group of nerve roots that form together coming out of the spinal cord and form this grouping, if you will, of nerves that we can block and block multiple at once in the same geographical area in the body. Specifically today, we want to discuss the brachial plexus. This is going to be coming off C5 through T1. So C5, 6, 7, 8, and T1, it's five nerve roots that are going to be coming out of that cervical and the top part of the thoracic spine, and they're going to be branching off into the shoulder and down the arm. And so we're going to be trying to isolate and block different sections of this plexus depending on any type of procedure from the shoulder down on the upper extremity. So what we're going to do during this talk is first go through the anatomy on how the brachial plexus is arranged, and then we're going to go through and walk our way down some of the main blocks that we can do at different sections of this plexus to allow us to do different procedures in the upper extremity. So it's important that we understand, like Cole said, the anatomy of this. So first you'll have roots coming from the spinal cord and forming three trunks for the brachial plexus. These three trunks are the superior, middle, and inferior trunks. Your C5 and 6, so that's going to be your highest part of the brachial plexus, is going to be the superior. C7 is your middle, and then C8 and T1 is going to be the inferior trunk for the brachial plexus. Each trunk is going to divide into two divisions, so a posterior and an anterior division. The posterior divisions of the three trunks are going to connect to form the posterior cord. The anterior division of this, the superior and middle trunk, will combine to form the lateral cord, and then the anterior division of the inferior trunk will form the medial cord. So again, this can kind of get twisted up in your mind, but just keep in mind that all the posterior, the three divisions, they all form one cord, and that's the posterior cord. The anterior part is where it gets a little more confusing. So the superior and middle will form your lateral. The inferior will form the medial. Now let's talk about branches. You have five nerve branches from the cord. So the lateral cord, remember that's going to be your superior and middle trunk, are going to form the musculocutaneous. The median nerve is going to come from the lateral and medial cord. So that lateral, again, is going to be your superior and middle trunks. And then the medial is going to be the inferior trunk. And then your ulnar cord is going to be formed from just the medial cord. Again, that's going to be your inferior trunk. The posterior cord, that's going to be all three posterior division of these three trunks, is going to form your axillary and then your radial nerves as well. Great. So like Tanner said, that can be very confusing. And if you weren't tracking with him, which I highly doubt you were, if you weren't looking at a picture, it's very hard to picture that all in your head without seeing a mapping of this. I again, encourage you to look at a map of this while we're explaining it. So let's do a quick 20 second review of this. So we start with the roots, C5 through T1. 
the top part, C5 and 6, form the superior trunk. C7 forms the middle trunk. C8 and T1 form the inferior trunk. All the trunks divide into an anterior and a posterior division. The posterior division of all of those trunks form the posterior cord, whereas the superior and the middle trunk anterior division forms the lateral cord, and the inferior anterior division forms the medial cord. From there, you form your branches. The posterior cord will branch into the axillary and radial. Your medial cord will branch into your ulnar and then combine with the lateral cord to form the median branch. And then the lateral cord itself will also form the musculocutaneous. So again, look at a picture to help get that straight. Uh, it's very important that you understand what comes from what as we get into the ways that we can block this. So before we get into the ways that we can block it, let's talk about how to understand which branches affect which part of the upper extremity. So let's go through our five branches here. The radial nerve, which again comes from the posterior cord, is going to sense the lateral aspect of the thumb. Obviously, the radial is the thumb side, the ulnar is the pinky side. So if we think the radial nerve, we're going to sense the lateral outside aspect of our thumb, and it's going to cause finger extension and also some elbow extension due to some triceps contracting. So that's something that I originally didn't think about. The radial nerve is going to innervate the triceps so that when it is stimulated, it's going to cause the triceps to contract and that elbow to extend. The median nerve, this is going to sense the middle three fingers. That makes sense. Median nerve, middle three fingers. And it's going to cause some thumb opposition from the motor standpoint. This is something that tripped me up when I first saw it. You would think if the thumb is going to have opposition, that's going to be the radial nerve, but it's not. It's the median nerve. So don't get that confused. And then the ulnar nerve, this is going to sense the lateral aspect of the fourth finger along with the pinky. That part makes sense. And motor is going to be pinky finger abduction. So on your hand, quick review, radial is going to be your thumb, especially the lateral aspect of that. Your middle three fingers is going to be the median nerve, the outside of that fourth finger, and then your pinky is going to be the ulnar nerve. The last two that we need to talk about, the axillary nerve, this is going to be sensing the outside of the shoulder, and the deltoid contraction is going to be the motor from this axillary nerve. So if it's stimulated, you're going to see that arm flip up and abduct, and that's that deltoid contracting. And lastly, the musculocutaneous nerve, this senses the lateral forearm, and its motor is biceps contraction. So that's going to be like you're doing bicep curls. You're going to have the flexion of your elbow. So again, radial was the extension of the elbow to the triceps contracting, musculocutaneous nerve as the biceps contraction, so elbow flexion. Hopefully that makes sense. And as we go through talking about the different blocks, if you are noticing some of these muscles twitching or moving in certain ways, you can deduce what kind of nerve you are stimulating due to knowing which one affects which muscle. So now, Tanner, do you want to start us off? We're going to go through the four different ways we can block the brachial plexus. It's interscaling, supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary blocks. So let's just start us off with the interscaling block. The interscaling block is probably one of the more common ones that at least I've seen in clinical practice. This is typically seen for a shoulder case. If you have something uh, obviously down on the arm or you know anything on that extremity, this is a good block for this. The reason this block is preferred compared to some of the others that we'll talk about here in a second is because it's basically the highest up or it catches it at the highest point 
of the brachial plexus as far as these blocks go that we're going to talk about. So you have a, a much more comprehensive block than you would with some of these others. When we talk about some of these other blocks, we're kind of moving down into different aspects of the brachial plexus. And so you may just get specific nerves that are blocked, whereas the ISB block is going to be, again, more of a comprehensive block. So the goal here is you're going to want to target the C5 to C7 nerve roots. Remember, the roots are going to be coming right off of the spinal cord. And so, like I said, this is going to be a pretty high block comparatively to some of these others that we'll talk about. These roots will pass right between the middle and anterior scalene muscles. So it's brilliantly named the inner scalene block, which honestly is very helpful when you're looking at the ultrasound picture. You can see these scalene muscles as part of the anatomy that you'll be looking at to kind of get your bearings and get a good idea of what you're looking at. Before we go too much further, I just want to do a brief recap. You probably already know this, but when we're talking about ultrasound, keep in mind that hypochoic is going to be black. Hyperchoic is going to be your white structures. The hypochoic sometimes is called anechoic, where there's just no light. Basically, it's all these black structures. The tricky thing about these nerves is sometimes they can be anechoic or hypochoic. Sometimes they can light up really hyperchoic. And so it's really important that you understand what you're looking at. And typically, you find your structures by first locating an artery. The artery is probably going to be the most commonly used structure that you'll see on the ultrasound that will then guide you to kind of get your bearings and figure out where the nerves are in relation to that artery. For the ISB block, you're going to start with the transducer parallel to the clavicle. You start down on the clavicle. You can have the patient turn their head. This makes it a little bit easier. That sternocleidomastoid muscle will pop out and right behind that sternocleidomastoid is where you can place your transducer. So it'll be on the anterior portion up against that muscle and then on the base of the transducer will be along the clavicle. This is a nice place to start because you can see your subclavian artery. Typically, this is a good landmark that you'll find. And then you can move up the neck and then you can start to see the different scalene muscles, the anterior and middle scalene muscles. And then you can also see your sternocleidomastoid muscle on this picture, the ultrasound picture. As you move up, you'll start to see that anterior scalene muscle will typically be a more fat oval shaped muscle. Just lateral to that, you will see your C5, C6, C7. This is usually referred to as the stoplight formation. As you move up from the clavicle in a cephalad direction, you'll start to see those three roots pair up right on top of each other, C5, C6, C7. This is where you're going to want to do your block, and that's where you'll get the dense block. Again, this is going to block everything, then moving down the pathway, and so you'll get your trunks, divisions, cords, and branches all blocked from getting these roots all the way up here at the interscaling block. Many times, if you can't quite figure out where your structures are, it's helpful for me to start at the clavicle, find your subclavian artery. You'll be able to see that pulsating. It's generally a very large structure there, easy to identify. And then sometimes it's easy just to move up and down and kind of get a good idea of how these structures change. Sometimes if you're moving really, really slowly and you're trying to find a specific structure, you can kind of start wishing that you're seeing things or get confused about little different nuances that you see on the screen. Sometimes just getting comfortable moving up and down the neck and seeing all these structures change 
you'll start to get a pretty good idea of how those change and you start to see that stoplight come and go might help you honestly to have a little bit more fluid of emotion at the beginning to move up and down, make sure you see the different structures and then you can kind of zero in and see right where that stoplight formation forms and you know they are at a good level for that block. It's really important that you find those landmarks and for most of these blocks, the landmark is going to be an artery and that's going to be that pulsating hypoechoic structure. So it's going to be this black circle that is not going to be compressible. And so when you try to compress it, you're really going to start to see it pulsate. And when you put that transducer above the clavicle, that's what you want to see is that subclavian artery pulsating. And just lateral to that, you almost see this grape looking structure, some additional hypoechoic circles that look like little grapes. And that's going to be the nerve trunks and divisions that are occurring from this brachial plexus, which we'll get to when we do our supraclavicular block. But for the interscalene block, as Tanner said, you follow those grapes up. In terms of actually blocking that, once you have found the stoplight or snowman configuration, you're going to put in some local anesthetic just to numb the skin before we take our needle that we're going to puncture through the skin and down into these nerve roots. So our goal when we're injecting the local anesthetic into this space is, again, not to inject it into the nerve itself. That would be very bad. Instead, we want to inject around the whole entire aspect of these three nerves, C5, C6, and C7. And so this is where you really want to have an in-plane approach when you're injecting your needle. What I mean by that is your transducer is going to be parallel to the angle at which you bring in your needle. And that way you can see that needle the entire time with the tip. And then you're going to be able to see exactly where you're going to be injecting. When you inject the local anesthetic, we're going to be injecting a few mils at each spot. So when determining how much local anesthetic you can use, it's going to depend on both the type of local anesthetic as well as the patient's weight and the concentration of that medication you're using. So for example, let's say I'm going to use Marcane or Bupivacaine, and I'm going to use a 0.5% solution. While I know that Marcane is a max dose of 2 mils per kilogram if I'm not using epinephrine, or 3 mils per kilogram if I am using epinephrine, since that epi is going to constrict the vessels around that area and keep the medication locally and not let it spread. So let's say I'm going to use the 0.5% with epi. I can calculate my max dose. Let's say I have a 70 kilogram patient. I multiply that by three because that's my max dose with epi, and that gives me 210 total milligrams. Well, I'm using a 0.5% solution, so if I move the decimal place over one, I know that I have five milligrams per milliliter of this solution. So I'm going to divide that 210 by five, and that gives me a total dose of 42 milliliters that I can inject into this patient. So I prepare my medication. I'm hoping that I'm probably not going to use that much with the technology advanced and ultrasound, we can more directly inject this medication around these nerves. And so we shouldn't need to use that many mils. You got a problem if you're using, I'd say 42 mils of this 5% solution. But in theory, that's how you calculate your max dose. So as Tanner said, once I find that stoplight, I'll go in and I'll inject a couple mils in each aspect, posterior, lateral, medial. Again, you're just trying to get all around. And it might not be the ideal position to do that, but that is the goal is to get all around the nerve root that we're trying to block. And if somebody hands you a vial of, you know, 5% marcaine or, you know, really whatever kind of local anesthetic and they ask you to add in epi, this can get really confusing because they'll say, hey, I want this to be a ratio of one to 200,000. And so now all of a sudden you're 
trying to figure out how you're going to do all this math and make sure that there's enough epi in there to get a ratio of one to 200,000. It gets really simple if you just remember two things. If you're doing one to 200,000, that is going to be five per. So that's going to be five mics of epi per mil of whatever local anesthetic they give you. The other thing you can remember is sometimes they'll ask you one to 100,000 and that's easy. That's just 10 mics per mil. And so whatever they give you, if they hand you the syringe, like Cole's example, they give you 42 mils of this Marcane and they say, I want this to have a one to 200,000 of epi. The math is super simple. You take whatever total mils they give you and you just multiply it by five. They give you a syringe of 42 mils. You just multiply that by five and you know that you need 210 mics of epi to go in that total 42 mils of local anesthetic. So when we're talking about the interscaling block specifically, let's talk about the things that we should hope to see to show that our block is correct and then the complications that can arise from doing this block. So if we're going to be stimulating the nerves at this nerve root, there are going to be a couple of different muscle reactions that we should see. You might see that deltoid abduction, the contraction, the shoulder abduction, and that's from, again, the axillary nerve, which motorizes the deltoid. You might see the biceps flex, the triceps flex, which would be that forearm extension or flexion. And again, that is from the radial and the musculocutaneous nerves. And then you might see any of the fingers twitch or anything like that. Again, any of these nerves will be appropriate responses. As we work down to our lower blocks, you shouldn't see some of these responses, and that means you're too high. So for example, any block after this, we do not want to see the shoulder abduction because we should have a lower response than that because we're not trying to block the shoulder. We're trying to block lower than the shoulder. Another thing that you will see with a interscaling block is what's called Horner syndrome. Horner syndrome is three things that are grouped together, and it is pupil constriction, eye drooping, and decreased sweating. And these three things make up Horner syndrome, which is normally seen in a block. If we do this interscaling block, it is appropriate to assess the patient prior to see if they already have some of these symptoms so that you don't falsely assume that you are in the right spot and you blocked the right thing because you see these symptoms in the patient. Complications that will be seen. The big one that I've come across is the phrenic nerve block. So the phrenic nerve comes in close proximity to the roots that we're trying to block in the interscaling block. And if we block the phrenic nerve, well, the phrenic nerve is going to innervate the diaphragm. And so we do not want to block that because then the diaphragm is not going to be able to contract. And if the diaphragm can't contract, the patient's not going to be able to breathe as well. This is not too big of an issue in a healthy patient because it's just going to block one side of the diaphragm because the phrenic nerve on the opposite side will still be working appropriately. But if you already have a patient with respiratory complications such as COPD, you probably don't want to be doing an interscaling block for this reason because it's blocked almost 100% of the time, at least in some capacity, just because it's in close proximity to those roots. Another complication is a pneumothorax. You can inject into the tip of the lung. The tip of the lung on the right side goes a little bit higher, so it's more likely if you're doing a right interscaling block. And again, if we are injecting our needle into this part of the lung, you're going to cause that air to be able to go in. And this brings up a good point. Another risk that you can have is an arterial injection. And so whenever you're going to be advancing your needle, before you inject any medication, we need to aspirate to make sure that we're not in a vessel that can cause us to put in that local anesthetic into the vascular system. 
specifically with the interscaling block, the vessel that we're concerned about injecting into is going to be the vertebral artery. If the vertebral artery has that medication put into it, one of the signs that you're going to see are seizures. Now that we've gone through the interscaling block, these next three blocks that we're going to talk about are going to move a lot quicker. Now that we understand both the ultrasound techniques and some of the structures that we're looking for, these will make a lot more sense and will move a little bit quicker. The next one we want to talk about is the supraclavicular block. This is not all that different from the interscaling block. It's simply a lower block. Since it's lower, we're blocking the trunks and divisions instead of the roots. As far as how you line up for this block, though, it's very similar to your ISB. You'll want to place your transducer at the same starting point as the ISB. So right there on the superior side of the clavicle. The only difference here is once you locate your subclavian artery, you're basically there. This should be where you want to do your block. And so you'll want to look for a couple of things. First, your subclavian artery. Again, that's a great landmark. The next thing is since you are resting on the clavicle, you move the tail of your ultrasound more cephalad. So you're looking down basically at the structures of the thoracic cavity. You'll see the first rib there. It'll be a hypoechoic structure, anechoic structure. When you have the subclavian artery and this first rib in view, you should be able to see here the trunks and divisions of the brachial plexus just lateral to the subclavian artery. Your needle drive will still be similar to the ISB where you'll be moving from the lateral aspect of the transducer towards the medial aspect. The biggest concern here we talked about for the ISB, your risk of phrenic nerve involvement is going to be pretty high. That's still a possibility here. It's not quite as high as the ISB. What we're really concerned about here is a pneumothorax. Think about we're farther down, closer to the thoracic cavity. We are right there on top of the clavicle. Our needle drive is going to be towards the midline approach. And so it's really important, like Cole mentioned, that you are in plane, you're watching the tip of your needle, and that you're not falsely thinking you're still approaching the nerves while you're out of plane and the needle is actually much further down. This is where you can have a pneumothorax and obviously all the complications that go along with that. The other thing that you need to think about, again, if you're out of plane and you're deeper than you think you are, you could be in the subclavian artery. Like Cole mentioned, it's always good practice before you inject anything that you aspirate and make sure that you're not intravascular or in this specific case that you're not in the subclavian artery. And again here, some of the acceptable twitches that you might see if you're accidentally pushing up against the nerves are going to be some lower extremity twitches in that arm. And again, we're not going to want to see that shoulder abduction simply because you're starting to move further down in the terms of these blocks. And I guess I should specify from earlier when I'm talking about these twitches, we're not trying to actually get these twitches and push into the nerve. On our ultrasound, we should be seeing the nerves that we want to block and then blocking around that. But if you do happen to get a twitch, these are the kind of twitches that you would want to get. The twitches are more used if you're going to be doing a blind technique where you're not using an ultrasound and you're going in uh, to try to find the correct nerves to block, then you would really be watching for these twitches. But again, this is more in the ultrasound technique. If you accidentally bump up against the nerve and, and they have a stimulus go down, you'll see those twitches. Moving into the next block, we have the infraclavicular block. So this is now targeting the cords on our brachial plexus. Of the ones that I have come into contact with, this seems to be the most painful block out of all of them. So again, really making sure that we're putting in that superficial local anesthetic prior to going deep and trying to block these nerves. 
where you want to go is you want to place your transducer just distally to the coracoid process. And we now want to change our placement of our transducer. So we're not going parallel with the clavicle. We're going to be more in a vertical position so that on our screen, we're going to be seeing a cephalodicotal direction rather than a medial to lateral direction. What you'll see when you place the transducer vertically here, right around that coracoid process, is you should see two muscle layers, and it's going to be your pectoralis major followed by your pectoralis minor. Underneath that, you're going to see your axillary artery pulsating. So again, we're really looking for these arteries. So in this case, it's going to be the axillary artery. And the cords in this position are going to be hyperechoic. So in the previous blocks, they were hypoechoic, meaning they were these black circles. Now they're going to be lighting up a little bit more. So that was something that really threw me off when I first started looking into these blocks because I was looking for black circles on some images. I'm looking for bright spots on the other. So it's just important to note here on the first two blocks, you're looking for the hypoechoic. This block, you're looking for the hyperechoic. This is when it starts to get a little trickier because you're starting to have some branching off and not everything is so tight together. And so the medial cord is going to be noted between that axillary artery and then you'll see the axillary vein as well. And that medial cord will be between those two. And remember, the difference in the artery and the vein is the vein will be compressible, the artery will not, and it'll be pulsating. The posterior cord is going to be deep to the artery, and the lateral cord is going to be cephalot to the artery. So again, make sure you know with your transducer which side you're using left and right so that when you're looking at your screen, you know which side is cephalot versus caudal. And again, we're going to try to block now around this axillary artery because like I said, the lateral cord is on the cephalad side, the posterior cord is going to be deep to that artery, and that medial cord is going to be on the caudal side between that artery and the vein. So we're really working in a semicircle direction here around this artery to try to inject the local anesthetic. So a big complication is going to be accidentally injecting this local anesthetic into that artery. So again, it's very, very important that we're going to aspirate prior to injection. And secondly, another complication, again, is going to be that pneumothorax. We're still close to that lung, close to that pleura. We just want to make sure we're not going to be causing a pneumothorax. The last one that we want to talk about here today is the axillary block. And so this is going to target the branches of the plexus. And to set up for this block, you're going to have the patient abduct their arm 90 degrees and then place their palm up. And so they're going to rotate their arm a little bit. This is important because if you think about it, if they have their arm just straight out and you have your transducer basically in a vertical position. So cephalodicotyl, this would just be just that cephalodicotyl. But when you have them rotate their arm, it's actually going to be an anterior to posterior view because typically what's on the underside of their arm is now going to be on the front side. So where you're placing your transducer is actually going to be an anterior posterior view instead of a cephalodicotyl view. You're going to place the transducer between the biceps and the pectoralis major muscle. The axillary artery, again, this is going to be your landmark that you're going to see and will kind of start finding other structures after you find the artery that's running through this area. So the axillary artery is going to be your main landmark. And then you're going to see the median nerve on the anterior side. Radial nerve is going to be deep to that. And then the ulnar nerve is going to be on the posterior side. Often with this block, you'll try to get the musculocutaneous nerve as well. This is already branched off higher up. And so this is going to be a hyperchoic section that is anterior and deep 
to the chorio-brachialis muscle, oftentimes you'll see people pull the needle all the way almost back to the skin, just maintain the one puncture site, redirect the needle, and then go over and get that musculocutaneous nerve if it's structurally feasible with how the patient's anatomy appears on that ultrasound picture. Keep in mind that if you do not get that musculocutaneous nerve as well, you'll still have some sensory on the lateral side of the forearm. This is often a common test question with the axillary block. If the patient is still having feeling on the lateral side of the forearm, is this normal? Are you okay to proceed? And this is going to be a normal finding if you don't get that musculocutaneous nerve. If you do get that infiltrated as well, then you should have a total block there of the musculocutaneous, the radial, and the ulnar and median nerves as well. So hopefully that was a good summary on the brachial plexus, its anatomy, and the four main blocks that we do, starting up high at the interscaling, working our way down to the clavicle, both on top and bottom, and then more into the axillary. There are individual blocks you can do for the branches further down the arm in terms of directly blocking the radial nerve, the median, the ulnar, etc. For time's sake, we're not going to go into all those. But just know that that is an option that if you want to target a very specific branch, you can go further down the extremity and do that. So again, just know that you can block those individual branches further down the extremity if need be for specific scenarios. But for the most part, hopefully this is a good summary on the four main blocks that we do for the brachial plexus. 